Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you. Happy Mother's Day. You're welcome. Um, Mother's Day is a special time. Uh, If you are a mother, um, thank God for you. If uh, you struggled this morning to get your, your family here, your crew here, because, you know, your kids just weren't really wanting to or were motivated to do that, God bless you for doing that this morning. Um, it is truly a blessing to have a mother that sees the necessity of, uh, of the church and of bringing their children to church. What a, what a blessing it is. And also, you are blessed this morning if your children weren't the problem, but your husband was. Um, and you struggled to get him here this morning. Praise God uh, that you made it with the whole crew if you did. And uh, if you have a mother, that's everybody, I think, um, thank God for them today. And even if your mother is passed on, you can still praise God that you had a mother and that you are here today. And again, by God's grace, we are all in this room and we are here to hear from the Word of God. So you're not going to hear a Mother's Day message per se, but you are going to hear a message about God and about the Son of God. And we are going to be in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13 this morning. And I've given a title to this morning's message of Like Us, But Not Like Us. Like Us, But Not Like Us. Now, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be one close to you, and it'll be on page 785 of that black hardback Bible. And the reason why I've titled this morning's message, Like Us, Not Like Us, is because we are going to look at Christ and who Jesus is. And this is, again, what Mark is trying to get across to us about who Jesus is, that he is like us, but he is not like us. Now, Christianity is not like any other world religion. The similarities that are found between world religions and Christianity um, take a really hard turn away from each other whenever we get to one central point or one central person. And who is that? Jesus. It's whenever the world religions uh, go along in the same kind of form and fashion of what religion kind of is. But once we get to the person of Jesus, we break hard away from everyone else. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. In Islam, for example, the view of Jesus is that it is limited that he is only a prophet of God, but not the Son of God. In Mormonism, the teaching is that Jesus is a separate God, little g, from the Father, and also he is the spirit brother of Satan himself. In Jehovah's Witness, they teach that Jesus is really only Michael the Archangel, and again, he is not really the Son of God, the begotten Son of God. None of these are the view in which the Bible teaches us. The person of Jesus is crucial to all of our understanding of the Bible. We must get the person of Jesus correct. And your understanding of the Bible's teaching of Jesus is vital to how you view the rest of Scripture and how you view all of theology and doctrine. In order for us to get the doctrine of salvation right, or how we treat others right, or end times theology right, and basically everything else in which you will find in the Bible correct, it is centered around one person, that is Jesus. If you wander on into all these other doctrines and exclude Jesus out of it, you miss all of it. And you will quickly be swayed into cults and other religions because you do not understand who Jesus is. That is the central question, Christian, that you must understand. Who is Jesus? 
And as a Christian, you should be able to explain that to others too. When they ask you the question, well, who is Jesus? You shouldn't stammer around, well, I don't, I don't know, he crossed and died. And No, you should be clear on who Jesus Christ is. If we hope to get any theology right or doctrine right, we must have Jesus right. So, as we look at Mark's gospel, we will find that he has given us really only one option as to who Jesus Christ is. There is no other option, according to Mark. He's already told us, he said he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, he is God. We learned this last week as we looked at just the first three verses of chapter 1 in Mark's gospel. Today, we will see Mark giving us even more clarity on who Jesus is. Mark gives us, in very rapid succession this morning, two very important details about who Jesus is. And we see the baptism of Jesus in verses 9 through 11, and what we will see in verses 12 through 13 is Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. So let's go to our text, verses 9 through 13 this morning, and we'll walk back through these after we read them. Started there in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. God, as we look into your word this morning, help us to see Christ, that we would lift him high above ourself, above our tradition, our religion, above our ideas, and that we would see him clearly in your word. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. There in verse 9, it tells us that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Nazareth, what is this place? Well, it's seemingly insignificant because the Old Testament gives no reference to the place of Nazareth. The, the Jewish history has really nothing to say about Nazareth other than what we find here in the New Testament about it. Nazareth, it's located, even today, currently, it's located 70 miles north of Jerusalem. Not only is it a town that is seemingly insignificant, but it really had kind of a bad reputation that we know of in this time period because of Nathaniel's quote, which you probably are familiar with, out of John's Gospel, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, let's be honest this morning. You probably had this kind of mentality toward another town. I won't name any names. You probably had this kind of attitude toward another county or state, you know, whenever you refer to that one place and everybody chuckles, right? This is exactly what people thought of Nazareth. And what's happening here? Jesus is coming out of this place that was not highly esteemed. It was not thought to be a place that would produce great leaders or teachers. It's Nazareth. And you insert whatever town or county state in there. Get that idea in your mind, and that's exactly what was thought about this place of Nazareth. And here, what we see, what God is doing, is that God is taking something that is insignificant, and he's proving his magnificence out of it. Isn't this exactly what he's done in your life, Christian? That he's taking something that is seemingly insignificant. Yes, I know you're fantastic. 
I know you're amazing, or at least you think so. But in, in light of the universe, how insignificant are you that you are on this little bitty planet in this vast universe, and you're just a speck, one of the seven plus billion How insignificant we really are, but what has God done by the way of his son? He has magnified himself in you personally, hasn't he? Isn't this amazing to see that God would take a place or a person that is seemingly insignificant and he would magnify himself in it? That's enough for us to pray and end our service today. I think we could ponder on that all day long. How amazing God is. How big God is to take something that is maybe so worthless and turn it to something so valuable. Galilee is an area in which is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. It's, it was recognized as a region and still is as a region today. It's a place in which it, has, it, it was heavily populated by Gentiles. There's a really famous city that is there on the Sea of Galilee in the area of Galilee called Tiberias. And it was a Roman city. And what has happened in this time period is that, really, if you were from Galilee, you were kind of looked down on because, well, you've, you've allowed these Gentiles to infiltrate the area. And Jesus is coming from this area. He did not come from a well-known place like Jerusalem. This is not at all where he came from. But I don't think any of this is a coincidence in where Jesus comes from. When you look at the attitude of Israel at this time towards God, what do you see? I think you see that people, the Israelites specifically, they did not know God, nor did they really respect Him like they should have. And so when Jesus coming from Nazareth, it seems to be that God is saying, you don't know me, and you don't respect me, but I'm going to love you anyways. And I think as Jesus shows up on the scene here in Mark's Gospel, I think we get the sense of that. Understanding this background, understanding what's happening here, and seeing that God, through all the disrespect, through all the hatred even toward Him, He sends His Son. Also there in verse 9, notice it says, "...and was baptized by John in the Jordan." Now, this event in Jesus' life has been confused by way too many people, and I hope to clarify a lot of that this morning... What I've seen people do in misunderstanding something from the Bible is really a couple of factors play into that. One, sometimes people use a translation in which they really don't understand the terminologies that are used in it, and they apply their own 21st century ideas onto those terminologies, and they are lost in translation. Another thing that happens is that people do not read the passage in the context in which it is written. Like I just explained, some background of Nazareth and of Galilee, they don't read it as such. They don't really recognize the original audience or the overall intention of the book and factors like these. And so they they misunderstand, they misinterpret what is being said. But here's what happens a lot of times, the third thing, is that they simply don't want the Bible to say what it says. They just don't like that God. They don't like that Jesus. And this is one of probably the, the hardest things to overcome because people hang on to the idea in which they have, or at least maybe a pastor has told them or a good friend or family member has told them, and, oh, I don't want to believe what that says. And so Scripture gets twisted and misinterpreted because of these things. And this is what happens with the baptism of Jesus specifically. Some look at the baptism of Jesus and come to very, very wrong conclusions about what happens here. For example, some would say that 
at this time when Jesus comes to be baptized, that this is when he becomes God in the flesh. That it's only in the moment of his baptism that when the Spirit comes, that that's when he's God. Also, some would say that Jesus, he had sinned before this, and it was only now in which he is now perfect, in which he can live a perfected life and go to the cross and, and then pay for sin. Again, these are wrong conclusions, ridiculously wrong conclusions. They do not fit into Scripture as a whole. And I think where all this confusion starts to happen is because people just ignore verse 11 here in Mark. Now, why does Mark only record these few words about this baptism? Again, it's only three verses. Why does he not expound upon it if it is so important? Well, I think verse 11 is enough, is enough for us. It tells us what God says about Jesus. And what does God say? He says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is the point of all what Mark is trying to get across. Mark doesn't need to go on and explain any more. He has given us enough proof of who Jesus is. This case that Mark is building is not only building who Jesus is, but also the deity of Jesus as well. So from the information which we've been given by Mark, there's a lot of questions, which I'm sure maybe you have or, or other people would have. But just because you have questions, we have to be very careful not to jump to conclusions that are wrong conclusions because we haven't read all of it, because we've missed part of it. And so let's think about Mark's main point for a moment. What is Mark's main point? We talked about this last week and even into today. What is the main point? It is Jesus is the Son of God. That's who he is. That's who Mark is identifying as the most important one. And we'll talk more about this sonship this morning. The baptism of Jesus is such an important event that all four of the Gospels reference this moment. Now, what you will find in the four Gospels is that there are not all the same things that happen. And we talked a little bit about this last week. That this one moment, this baptism of Jesus, was so significant that all four of the Gospel writers knew they had to say something about it. And they have different things to say about it, different perspectives, but the same point is drawn out of all four writers. What is that point? Well, it's the same point that Jesus is the Son of God. All the gospel accounts are pointing in the same direction that Jesus has a sonship to the Father that is unlike anybody else's. Now, there are several several other details that are included in these other gospel accounts. I encourage you to go read those, to study those alongside of what Mark says. So let's, let's just think through for a moment this morning about the reasons why Jesus would need to be baptized. So let me give you six this morning, six reasons why Jesus was baptized. First thing, doesn't mean it's the, the best thing, it's just the first thing on the list. The first thing is this, it identifies Jesus as the one coming after John. Now, if you go back to verse 7 in the same chapter, it tells us, John says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John knew that he was not the final one. He was preaching, there's somebody after me that is coming, that is better than me. He, he is the one that you need to listen to. This is who John was pointing to. He is the one that is identified here. Jesus is this one. When Jesus comes to John, 
John is publicly proclaiming that Jesus is that one that he has been preaching about, that he's been teaching about, that he's pointing people to. Jesus is that one. Now, what we see from the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verses 29 through 30, we, we hear the words of John the Baptist. It says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, said, Behold, that means look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. John is identifying Jesus as the one, the anointed one specifically. As what we talked about last week with what John was saying in verses 7 through 8, that Jesus is the one that is superior in power, in value, in work. This is who he is. So if John was from God, John is now pointing to someone, and who specifically is it? It is Jesus. He is that one. A second thing that we see here about a reason why Jesus was baptized is that it associates Jesus with John's ministry. Not only is John saying, yes, Jesus is that one, but Jesus is connected to the ministry of John. And we see this back in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, where it's quoted from the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John knew who he worked for. He did not work for himself, but he worked only for the Father, and the intention of the Father, and essentially he worked for Jesus, the Son. All of John's efforts were in preparation for this man, Jesus. And later on in this chapter, we see in verse 15 that Jesus picks up in the same thinking, the same message as John the Baptist. He's preaching the same thing. And so Jesus is associated with the ministry. Why? Because John's ministry was from who? It was from God. So there should be no contradiction. And this is what happens with the disciples. When they come to Jesus at one point and says, Hey, there's some guys baptizing in your name, but they're not connected to us. And Jesus says, well, don't, don't stop them. There's no contradiction here. And the same thing's happening with John. People were identifying themselves with John's baptism, but John was always pointing people to Jesus. So there's no contradiction And what we see here with this association is that a bridge that is built between the Old Testament and the New, and that one bridge is John the Baptist. As we talked last week, that blank page in your Bible, that 400 years of silence, there was no prophet. But now there is. And who is that prophet pointing to? Jesus. This is the bridge. John the Baptist is the bridge. His ministry and Jesus' ministry are connected. That They are not at odds They're not going in different directions. They're connected. And so the baptism of Jesus is identifying him in association with John's ministry as well. A third reason is that it is the public inauguration of Jesus' ministry. You see this there in verse 8, where it says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was coming to do some work. He had some work to accomplish to do. John knew what he was supposed to do, and he was to prepare the way, but now the one that was promised, the one that is associated with John's ministry, the one is here, and he is going to go to work. He has a ministry to execute. Jesus is now front and center in the story of Mark's gospel, 
but also in John's baptizing of him. He is pushed to the front of the storyline. John understood his place. He knew that his ministry was only in preparation for a one that had a greater ministry, and that was Jesus. And we see that there in verse 8. When Jesus is baptized, what you will see in all four Gospels is that there is an instant shift in the Gospels. They shift away from maybe genealogies or John the Baptist, and they shift hard into who is this Jesus? What is his life? What is his ministry? And they do this for a reason and for a purpose, because this is exactly what John the Baptist wanted. In John chapter 3, verse 30, what does John say? You know these words. He must increase, but I must decrease. This was John's intention in his ministry, was not to keep blazing the trail, but to hand off to the one that was to come. When we go through the waters of baptism today, it is a public proclamation of our faith. What has happened internally and spiritually is now displayed externally. It is saying the same thing in which John the Baptist says, that is, he must increase and I must decrease. As we go into the water, it is a symbol of this, of I must die so that I might live, but only in him. The fourth thing in which we have is probably the most important thing that we need to understand about the baptism of Jesus is that it identifies Jesus with sinful humanity. If you look in verse 9, it says that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus did not baptize himself. Again, this was not the, the regular mikvah baptisms that were happening in Judaism. This was an administered baptism by John. What, what's happening here? Why were people coming to John to be baptized? Mark has told us, he told us that it was for repentance of sin. They were confessing their sins. They were being baptized because of that. But what you will not find anywhere in the New Testament is any hint of Jesus coming and confessing sin and repenting of sin. Why will you not have that? Because he had no sin. Paul points this out later, that Jesus had no sin to repent of. Why did Jesus see the need to be baptized then? If this is what John was doing in baptizing people for repentance and confession, then why is Jesus doing this? John was confused, obviously, because what does John try to do? He tries to withhold baptism from him. He says, I don't, I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. If anything needs to happen, it should be the other way around. But what does Jesus tell him? Here's where the clarity is in one verse of Scripture, Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. This is where we get our answer. Why was he baptized? Look at verse 15 of Matthew 3. But Jesus answered him, meaning answering John, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John, consented. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that there, there has to be a fulfillment to take place. There's something that's not fulfilled yet, John. We have to do this. Now again, thinking about John's baptism and the purpose of his baptism, what was it? What was it? Was it only for repentance and confession? Yes, that was part of it, but there's also a second part to his baptisms. It was for a new identity. 
an identity that these people, again, that were Jewish, were coming to John to be baptized. Why? Because they were being identified individually with God through their faith, not through their ethnic identity or their heritage or their lineage or by any other religious affiliation, but only now through their faith. In the public baptism that was administered by John, these people were waving a completely different banner over their life than what they were before. Their ethnic background hadn't changed. Their bloodline was still the same. But now, spiritually, there's something radically different in them. There's a declaration that they belong to a different group. They are belonging to the people of God, not because of their ancestry, but because of this repentance and faith. With Jesus being baptized, he's fulfilling what the scriptures have said must happen. As he says there in Matthew 3.15, this must happen. What scriptures is he talking about? Go to, go to Isaiah 53. It would be good if you went there in your Bible. And I want you to mark these in your Bible if you do. Or if you're taking notes, write these two verses down. Verse 11 and verse 12. Why was Jesus baptized? What was he fulfilling in the scriptures? Isaiah 53... Verse 11 and verse 12. I'll give you a moment to get there. Verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was, underline this, numbered with the transgressors. Yet, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53 is talking about the coming Messiah. It is talking about the suffering servant of God and it is not Israel because verse 12 says that yet he bore the sin of many. Israel was not sinless and they could not bear the sin of many. But there had to be one that was innocent, that was sinless, that could do this, that could be an atonement. Who is this? It's Jesus Jesus was identifying himself with sinful people, but remaining sinless. As verse 12 says, he's numbered with them, but he is not of them. He is like us, but not like us. This is who Jesus is. What Jesus is doing in his baptism, he's also foreshadowing his death and his resurrection. Jesus' baptism was the fulfillment of what God had promised here in Isaiah 53, that there would be a one who would come from the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. There would be one among us to conquer sin. This physical action by Jesus was filled with symbolism, just like our baptisms are filled with symbolism today. Our baptism is symbolic, symbolically identifying us with Jesus. When someone is baptized, it is a public proclamation that they have repented of their sins and that they are now waving the banner of Christ over themselves. And it's through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection that you have the right to do so. It is only through Christ 
And so what Jesus is doing here in his baptism, he is numbering himself with transgressors, but he is not a transgressor. He is innocent in all of what he has done, all of what he thought, all of what he has said. Friend, you have never done that, ever. And Jesus is this one that is able to bear the sin of many and to make many righteous. It is only through this one that has identified himself with us that we have this right. A fifth thing that we have is that it shows the approval of Jesus by the Father. Look at verse 11. It says, and a voice came from heaven. I'll give you one guess. Who's the voice? God. Good job. My, four, my five-year-old got it. God is the voice. The Father gives approval here. There's always people saying, prove that Jesus was really who he says he is. Well, let's just think for a moment. Who would be the most reliable source you could ever trust with anything? God. So God, the Father, says what? He's my son. I am pleased in who he is. We say all the time, well, Jesus is the son of God. He's the son of God. Mark's even said he's the son of God. Why does Mark say that? Why do we say that? God said it. God said it about his son. This is my son. He's proclaiming his approval of what, has, what is happening here with Jesus and who Jesus is. This statement from heaven, you are my beloved son. The statement from heaven is helping us understand that Jesus is not just a prophet. No, he is the son of God. There's one place that this phrase was used in the Old Testament in relation to an individual. Only one place. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. What's interesting about Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 is that it's referring to the king of Israel. But in order for you to really understand who the king of Israel is in Psalm 2, we must go to Psalm 2. So please go to Psalm chapter 2. I want us to read this in its 12-verse entirety so that you can see who is this one. Psalm chapter 2. It says, Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Who is the Lord's anointed in Psalm 2? Now, if you have an ESV translation, more than likely, the translators have helped you understand something by simply capitalizing some letters. There's a letter A that's capitalized and anointed. There's two S's that are capitalized in the reference to the Son. But don't take the translator's word for it. 
what does Mark say about who this anointed one is? In verse 1 of Mark chapter 1, what does he say? Jesus Christ. What does Christ mean? Anointed one. Psalm 2, according to Mark, is saying Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the Son of God that he has begotten. He is the one that will make the nations his heritage. It's the ends of the earth that will be his possession. Jesus is the Son that we should kiss. Jesus truly is the Son of God. God's word has told us, it has revealed it to us. He is the King of Israel. He is the begotten Son of God. He is the one of Zion. Let's look at the sixth thing here in these three verses. The sixth reason why Jesus was baptized is that it reveals the triune God. It reveals the triune God. If you look at verse 9, 10, and 11, what you see in those three verses is that the Son is being baptized, the Spirit of God descending, and the Father is, being de- is declaring from the heavens. Now, these three verses eliminate the possibility of modalism being true. Modalism means that the persons of the Trinity represent only three modes or forms of God, not three distinct persons of one God. Another idea, if this will help in understanding what modalism teaches, is that God reveals himself by using different masks. That he wears the Father's mask and reveals himself a certain way, and then he takes that off and puts on the Son mask and reveals himself a different way, and then he takes off that one and puts on the Spirit mask to reveal himself that way. That's essentially what modalism teaches. That is not at all what you see in verses 9 through 11. You see all three at one time. Modalism cannot be true. One interesting point to be made about verse 10 that's here is the phrase that says, the heavens being torn open. Being torn open. And who is tearing them open? God is doing this. The Father's doing this. And Mark uses this same phrase one other time in his gospel, and it's located in chapter 15. And what is the context of Mark using that? Well, what happens at the end of Mark? Jesus' crucifixion. And he's using this term being, being torn in reference to the temple curtain being torn. Now what do both of these phrases have to do with one another? Are they related? Is it just a coincidence that Mark puts them at the beginning and at the end? No, there's no coincidence at all. What is Mark explaining in just these two simple phrases being used in different places? He is pointing to the fact that God the Father was pleased with Jesus' obedience to fulfill all righteousness at his baptism, and what was God saying at the end when he tears the temple curtain? I am pleased with my son's atoning sacrifice. He is pleased at the beginning and at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. So, in conclusion of these three verses, 9 through 11, We're left with really only one central point about Jesus, and that is that he is the Son of God, who is God in the flesh, and that has come to fulfill what was promised by God to be identified with sinners, us, but to be sinless so that he would one day go to a cross and take the wrath of God upon himself so that anyone who believes in the anointed one of God would be saved. That's the gospel. That is the good news that Mark is trying to communicate to us about Jesus. Now, the last two verses which we have this morning, 
verses 12 and 13. Let's read those again and be refreshed and remind what they say. It says, The Spirit immediately drove him out of the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Mark does not give us hardly anything about this moment in time, about what happens here in these 40 days. All we're given is kind of the length of time and what happens in that length of time. And the point is that Jesus was tempted by Satan himself. Now, there's something that I don't want you to miss here about these two verses. And so quickly we read through things, we don't really think about the implications of it. And the point I want you to ponder on is who led Jesus to the wilderness? It was the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit that had descended from heaven is now leading him into the wilderness. So what does this mean? Well, one thing it means is that Jesus is only following the leadership of the Father by the Spirit. This is the only agenda in which he has is to do what the Father wants him to do. And we see this even in his, his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Holy Spirit is guiding him. He's following after that desire, not his own fleshly desire. Another thing is that the people of Israel, when they, they hear this idea of Jesus being in the wilderness, being tempted in the wilderness, it should bring back memories of their discipline from God in the wilderness because they were rebellious to him. They did not follow his leadership. So he made them stay in the wilderness for 40 years, not 40 days. Now, what we see Jesus being led by the Spirit into was only for 40 days. But the people of Israel, whenever they were in the wilderness, they were there for a completely different reason. It's not just the length of time that matters. But the reason matters of why were they there. They were there because they were disobedient. That's why they were there. That's why they stayed there for 40 years. But Jesus is sent to the wilderness. Why? Because he is obedient. Now that sounds confusing, doesn't it? Well, if you happen to find yourself in a wilderness this morning, it could be because you are in disobedience to God. It might be that you have refused to listen to him, that you've refused to listen to the people of God speaking truth into your life. You've rejected that. If you find yourself in a wilderness month after month, year after year, it could possibly be that you are not living in obedience to God. Today would be a great day to repent of that disobedience and start your journey out of the wilderness. But also, you might find yourself in a wilderness because God has led you there. Maybe you've done nothing wrong. You've followed in obedience, but for some reason God has put you in this place. Maybe it's to refine you, to test you, to develop you, to strengthen you. Not just for your own benefit, but for the benefit of others. This is partially what's happening here with Jesus and, and declaring that he is capable, he is able, he is strong enough, he is the one that can help us, to strengthen us, to change us. So I tell you this because there's, there's too many people and churches that believe that they are in a wilderness for a time of testing when this is not the case at all of why they are there. They are there because of disobedience. They are there because they have ignored God's word. They are self-deceived and believing that nothing is wrong in their life and that the problem is not in them but in something else outside of them 
be reminded of what happened to the people that were rebellious and prideful to God. What happened to them in the wilderness? They all died. Also, I tell you this because there's too many people that also believe that they're in the wilderness because they've caused it. Well, I did something wrong. God's punishing me. When that's not the case at all. That You have been like Job. You've been an upright person. You have been following obedience. And God is doing something. God is doing something beyond you. And, and you need to quit blaming yourself. You need to quit blaming God. Let's not... Let's not take something away from God and what he's doing. Even though we suffer, we suffer for his purpose. It's a reason which we may not understand or a picture that which we cannot see, but again, it's for his glory. So if you are in a wilderness, please let the Spirit of God guide you to discerning between, is it because of me or is it because God has led me here? Don't blame God for something that is not his fault. Don't take something away from God either. So what needs accomplished in this wilderness that Jesus goes to? Jesus not only went into the wilderness obedient to the Father's leading, but he also comes out obedient. Amen. He goes in obedient and he comes out obedient. This is exactly the opposite of what happens in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? They were put there in the garden to follow in obedience to God. They had all safety, all security, all the things they need, all the things they wanted. And what do they do? They fail to live in obedience. What we see in Jesus is that he was there alone. Hence the mention of the wild beast here by Mark. He was obviously weakened physically. He was undoubtedly tired What was Satan trying to do in tempting Jesus? What was he trying to get Jesus to buy into? Listen, this is really important. The same thing which he's trying to get you to do as well, even in this moment as you're looking at the clock going, man, is he done? I got another 35 minutes. You'll be okay. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, What was he trying to tempt Jesus into to not suffer anymore? Jesus... Aren't you hungry? You don't need to suffer anymore. All this world could be yours if you just fall down and worship me. I think that's so funny. That Satan would offer the world in which the Father has already promised to the Son. It's yours. But what is the path in which you have to take to get it? You must suffer. Satan is saying, oh, no, no, you don't need to suffer. I'll give it to you. Like Satan has some sort of authority to give anything. Jesus does not listen to the temptation of Satan, but he keeps the course and he travels down the road of suffering. Christian, do not think for a moment that God has called you into comfort, that he has called you into a life of ease, that he's called you into a place where, you know what, things are going to be great now. He is not. Who is your master? The suffering servant of God. Do you think you're better than him? You think you deserve more than he does? Let's not be deceived in thinking that. Jesus, thankfully, took the path of suffering so that the transgressions of sinners could be paid for. Praise God for that. Mark is helping us see that what Adam failed to do in the garden, Christ, Christ has done it. 
The anointed one of God has accomplished it. Jesus proves that he is worthy. What we are given here in these few verses are not just blips on the screen of Jesus' life and his ministry. And and again, maybe you look at these five verses and think, oh, well, that's not much. Let's move on. Please understand that these are groundbreaking accomplishments in Jesus' life, in his ministry. We see that Jesus, the Son of God, is God in the flesh. He has come down to be identified with us. To be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, meaning that he was going to have to suffer. He proves his resolve in the wilderness under the direct temptation of Satan himself, proving that there is absolutely nothing that is going to detour him from the mission which the Father has set him on to fulfill. Be encouraged this morning, knowing that Jesus He is this one that we worship. He's the one that we we claim to be the Son of God. And all these claims, all the worship which we give, it is true, it is accurate, it is right. That he is the one that is capable to take away sin because of his humanity and qualified to go to the cross as an innocent sacrifice because of his overcoming of temptations of this world. He is worthy. He is like us. But he is not like us. This is the paradox, the beautiful paradox of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. Be encouraged this morning of this one in which we worship, this one in which we pray to, this one that has cleansed us of our sin. He did. He he is the Son. He is able. He is capable. And let's praise him because he is. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning, another moment of prayer, God, let us be in awe of who you are and that you you have done something that was impossible through man. But it had to be a man to take away our sin, to pay the price for man's sin. God, we thank you that you sent your son, your only begotten son, that would pay the price that we, we rightfully deserved. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy and your unfailing love to us. God, convict us of possibly the wilderness in which we are in because of our own doing. And God, for, help us understand that sometimes you lead us into a place for a purpose, for a reason. Give us the right eyes to see that. Help us discern rightly of, of how we've gotten there. And Lord, let us not rob you of glory in any way. We thank you again for your son. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.